0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 17. We are in the midst of a series of studies in the Gospel of Matthew. Today we are looking at chapter 17, verses 22 and 23. Jesus' Galilean ministry is over. He is on a uh, course that will take him to Jerusalem and ultimately to his own death. And uh, in verse 22, he speaks of that event. Hear the word of God. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank You for the Scriptures. Thank You that Your Word is truth itself. We pray, O God, that as we think about Your Word this morning, that You would instruct us, that You would open our eyes. We pray, Father, that uh, even in the contemplation of Your Word, we would worship You. We'd be filled with a sense of Your wisdom, a sense of Your glory in what You have done for us and in who You are. Thank You, Father, for this time we can spend studying the Scriptures. We ask for Your help. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Back when uh, Barbara and I lived in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, we we shopped at a chain of stores uh, by the name of Acme. Now, for those of you who are fans of the Looney Tunes Road Coyote series, this was not the chain of stores that sold anvils and dynamite and uh, those sorts of things. Rather, Acme was uh, a chain of grocery stores, and we would go there, and early on when we went there to to, uh, to pay, you know, you'd write a check, and they required you to have a check-cashing card, ID, and you would have your card, and you had a PIN number, which is a pleonasm because the N in PIN means number. Uh, you have a PIN, and uh, you'd give the cashier that number when it came time to check out. Well, as we were getting our PIN set up, they informed us that they had recently switched over to a new system, Whereas in the past they had a two-digit PIN, they now had a four-digit PIN. And so we set up our number. I think it's safe to tell you it was 7070. That was our first mistake. Well, after that, it would come time to pay at the checkout counter, and we'd inform, the, they'd ask, what's your PIN number? The cashier would ask, we'd say, well, 7070. Apparently no one told the checkout clerks, the cashiers, that they'd gone to a four-digit system because she would hear 7070, think Barbara was repeating herself, put in 70, the cash register would lock up and we'd inevitably have to call for a manager to come over and enter the code and free it all up so we could check out and leave. Well, this happened uh, a number of times and it was getting frustrating. Finally, I decided to proceed the uh, shopping cart in line there to check out and I would, I would lean over at the cashier, did this uh, at least once, I think several times, lean over at the cashier, look her in the eye and say, before anything had come up, for the first item had been, you know, entered into the register, look her in the eye and I'd say, we have a four digit pin. She'd kind of give me a strange look and I'd just move on. That's all I would say. And then Barbara would come along. We'd put all of the items out. She'd check us out, go through all the things. And then Barbara, as she was writing the check and handing it to her with the card, would say, We have a four-digit pen. And she'd look at me and she'd kind of, Oh, okay. And she would enter it and it would work. Sometimes she would enter it. Well, we finally found a cashier who knew what was going on. And we usually tried to get her. One time we didn't get her and she hollered over at the person uh, before I had a chance to, she hollered at the cashier, they have a four-digit pen. Apparently, we were the only ones who had a four-digit pen. But we would, I would tell her that, and as Barbara came up, and it came time to pay, she'd say, oh, okay. And she, if she was listening, would enter 7070, and everything would work just fine. Why does Jesus tell his disciples he's going to the cross? This is, after all, the second time as we've studied Matthew's gospel, this has come up. In chapter 16, verse 21, we read, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. He spoke not only of the cross, he spoke of his upcoming resurrection, but they didn't seem to hear that. In fact, at first, they didn't even understand about his going to the cross. Remember, Peter counters and says, no, Lord, this won't happen to you. Well, here again, as they're gathering, Jesus says to his disciples, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Why does Jesus tell them this now? Even as they're beginning to understand, it only serves to distress them, and they never seem to hear the part about his being raised. I think the reason Jesus was telling the, the, them this, this information ahead of time was so that the day would come, not even when it was happening, but afterwards. The day would come when they would look back and say, oh, now it makes sense. He told them this to prepare them for his sufferings, although it seemed to have minimal effect. They didn't seem to understand what was going on while it was, even though he had told them. But mainly he gave it to them, I think, to give them clarity afterward. Jesus, having said this in advance, clarifies his identity as the Son of Man, as the Son of God, as God incarnate. Sure, a human being, a mere human being, might, uh, knowing that he is incurring the displeasure of the governing authorities, especially in that day, uh, think that the day might come when uh, he disappears in the night and is is executed. But no man, even if he suspected his own death, would say he would be raised from the dead on the third day. Jesus is giving information that only he could know, only God could know about what would happen in the future. So it helps to confirm his identity But it also helps to confirm His purpose. Even before it happened, Jesus is telling them that He is going to go to the cross and that He would be raised. There's no way later they could say, well, things just went wrong. It was a good plan that went awry. Things didn't work out the way that He intended, and so God took what happened and made the best of it. No, no, no. Jesus told them early on, this is how it would play out. This is what would happen. And afterwards, after the events, and certainly after the giving of the Holy Spirit, they could look back and say, you know, he told us all along that this is what would happen. And so it was. Well, this is a short text, just two verses, but it is densely packed with information. And over the next few minutes, I want us to take a look at it and unpack these three statements that Jesus makes about his near future. First of all, Jesus says there that he is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, there is there is an, an ominous uh, new note to what Jesus says here. Earlier, he had just said this is what would happen. But here he speaks of being handed over, being delivered over. Uh, the word could be translated a couple of ways, basically the same meaning, but with its weaker force, meaning, as the ESV renders it here, to be delivered over, to be handed over, but with its stronger force, meaning actually to be betrayed. And the disciples would pick up on that. Something was going to happen that would result in Jesus being handed over, delivered over, uh, even betrayed to the governing authorities. Now, of course, you and I, from our perspective, know how that played out with Judas Iscariot, uh, Judas, of course, was one of the twelve. Uh, Judas should be a, uh, a sober warning to us all. Jesus uh, had, had picked Judas as a follower. Judas heard Jesus teach. Judas saw the miracles that Jesus did. Uh, in fact, Judas was part of those whom Jesus set out to preach and to do miracles in his name. And yet not all was right with Judas. Judas. Judas was in the right place, he was with the right people, but he did not have the right heart. His heart was was all wrong. Uh, Humanly speaking, Judas had a problem with money. In fact, we read in John's Gospel, in John chapter 12, that Judas took exception to Mary anointing Jesus with expensive perfume and said, well, why couldn't we have sold that for 300 denarii and given it to the poor? Oh, generous Judas Iscariot, right? No. John tells us after the fact, he said that because he kept the money bag and he used to steal from what was in it. Judas was a thief. Judas had a problem with money. And perhaps it was that same problem that made him susceptible to an offer uh, of payment of 30 pieces of silver if he would but betray Jesus over to the authorities. But not only humanly speaking with Judas uh, the instrument, but divinely Judas was the one who was ordained by God to this task. In fact, in John 17, Jesus in his in his uh, high priestly prayer there, uh, John 17, the entirety of it, a prayer Jesus makes for his disciples and for his church, says, I've not lost one of those you've given me except the son of perdition. Different translations render it different ways. Uh, The one doomed to destruction, the son of destruction, son of perdition. Uh, In other words, the one whom God ordained would be that lost soul among the disciples who would betray Jesus into the hands of men and set in motion that series of events that would lead to his crucifixion. And so Jesus hints at that here. He is about to be delivered into the hands of men. He doesn't name the instrument, but you and I know it was Judas Iscariot. Now he says, into the hands of men. How can the Son of God be under the power of the hands of men? Well, we need to recognize that that was a voluntary giving himself into the power of the governing authorities. Uh, Earlier in this Gospel, Matthew chapter 26, uh, where Jesus is being arrested in the garden and uh, the disciples uh, want to fight to protect him and Jesus will have none of it. He says, no, no, put the sword away. He says, do you not know that I could call on my Father? And he would send twelve legions of angels to deliver me, to protect me. To keep me from falling into the hands of men, but he didn't do it. Why not? Because he said, "This is how it must happen. This is how it is to be fulfilled. This is how it will be accomplished." It was voluntary. And later, when Jesus is before Pontius Pilate, John chapter nineteen, verse eleven. Uh, P- Pilate. Uh, says, don't you know, I have power to keep you, I have power to release you. And Jesus says to him, you would have no authority over me unless it was given to you from above. A recognition that Pilate's position, one, in general, was, was a dispensation or administration given to him by God. But particularly in Jesus' case, Pilate has authority over him only because God had given that To him, only because that was part of God's sovereign plan. And so we recognize here, as Jesus speaks of being delivered into the hands of men, that it would come through this human instrument, yet unnamed, and that it was a voluntary act of of the Lord Jesus to place himself into the hands of men. If Jesus had not so willed it, no man could hold him, no army could capture him. And yet Jesus willed to do that. It was his purpose to do that, the purpose of his Father. Because he wanted to accomplish your salvation and mine. And so he willingly humbled himself to being under the power of men, enemies, who wanted him dead. Well, then that leads to the second thing that uh, Jesus teaches us here, and that is that Jesus would be killed. Delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. Now, he's already mentioned this back in chapter 16. He would suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. In no uncertain terms, Jesus says, these events are going to result in my death. Well, it says the disciples were greatly distressed. Apparently, they've moved... As they're processing this information, they've moved from a denial of it, Lord, this shall never happen to you, to beginning perhaps to come to terms with it, and yet, understandably, we're not at all happy about it. It says they were distressed. Uh, Maybe they still didn't fully grasp what Jesus was saying, and yet as Jesus kept speaking of his death, that troubled them greatly. And they, they still don't seem really to get to the point of his being raised. They don't seem to get beyond his speaking of his death. Now, as we said before, that's totally at odds with their conception of the Messiah. Uh, the first time Jesus spoke of his death, Peter had just confessed Jesus to be the Messiah, uh, whom the Father had sent into the world. And then Jesus talks about his death. Well, those two pictures didn't fit together, uh, that the Messiah should suffer at the hands of men and die. Their idea of the Messiah was that his enemies would suffer at his hands and they would die as he delivered Israel uh, from Roman oppression, political uh, uh, bondage. Well, Jesus is speaking here of his death. Now, as you look at the death of Jesus in the light of Scripture, this was not just uh, a murder, this was not just an execution. There was, there was cosmic significance in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And just as his falling under the power of men was a voluntary Act on Jesus' part. Remember other times when they tried to take him and and Jesus eluded their grasp? uh, That was voluntary. Well, Jesus' actual own death was a voluntary act on his part. Uh, We read in John chapter 19, verse 30, that after his suffering on the cross, after he bore our sins there under the judgment of his father, that he yielded up his spirit. Jesus himself certainly had no sin for which he would die. Death is not a natural part of the order of things. Death was not a part of the world as God created it. We die because we sin, because this world is in sin. Jesus had no sin. Jesus himself had no reason to die. He died bearing our sin, but he died because he himself willingly, voluntarily, yielded up his spirit. So It was a voluntary death. I've sometimes wondered. I've not been there. Obviously, you haven't either. But what is it like to die? Not even a violent death. Uh, You hear of people, sometimes it seems as though they hold on until a loved one arrives. Are they able to stave off death, if only temporarily, in order to see someone before they die? I don't know. I don't know what that's like. What is it to fight death? What is it to be on a table in an intensive care unit to fight for your life? I have not been there. I don't know what that experience is like. Uh, Is someone actually able to hold off death if not... Uh, for a long time, at least for just a little while. Or if someone has given up, if someone has so suffered that they don't want to go on fighting death anymore, does that hasten their death? Obviously all under the providence and sovereignty of God, but I don't know. But I do know this, that at the appointed time, Jesus voluntarily bowed his head and yielded up his spirit. But we also have to say about his death, it was a real death. There are those who have attacked, uh, particularly the resurrection of Jesus, by saying, well, he didn't actually die, he fainted. A few moments thought will expose the difficulties in that. that. That does not solve anything. For one thing, to verify that he was dead, the Roman soldier ran a spear through his side, confirmed that he was, in fact, dead. You'll recall that they were surprised that Jesus had died so soon, and he did. He died relatively quickly compared to some who died a death of crucifixion that was prolonged. Uh, They were surprised, but they came out, confirmed he was dead, and confirmed it even further by running a spear through him. Uh, He was placed in the tomb. He was there for three days, not the least of which was uh, of the significance of that time, was to confirm that he was, in fact, truly dead. It was a real death. Jesus actually died. We also have to say it was a human death. God did not die on the cross. The God-man died. Jesus died, and his human nature, and his human body suffered a real death in your place and mine and every Christian's on the cross. But God himself cannot die. And, in fact, uh, have that difficult, admittedly difficult passage at the end of 2 Peter 3 that speaks of Christ preaching to the spirits who are now in prison. And I'll leave that to your Sunday afternoon activity and Bible study to untangle that one. Uh, 2 Peter 3, the end of the chapter. But in his humanity, Jesus very much died and was under the power of death for three days. But we also have to say, finally, it was a substitutionary death. Again, Jesus had no sin for which He might die. If He did, He could die only for Himself, only for His own sins. That's why it's vital that Jesus was sinless. When you hear people who profess to be evangelical Christians saying that Jesus, they don't believe Jesus was without sin, they've just undone their professed salvation. If Jesus sinned, He could die only for His own sin. But being the sinless Son of God, though tempted yet sinless, he was qualified to be that sheep without spot or blemish that died in the place of the sinner. And so we have to say it was a substitutionary death. And not just a death for everybody in general, but a death for his elect in particular, person by person, face by face, name by name. That when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die for everybody in general, possible, a potential salvation. He died for me. As the hymn says, in my place, condemned, he stood. He is my substitute. If you're a believer in Christ, he is your substitute. He died for you by name on the cross. A one-to-one correspondence. Jesus in your place. That we, that I, might have what he won for me by his obedience. So Jesus speaks here of being delivered in the hands of men, they will kill him and he will be raised on the 3rd day. Now Jesus never spoke of his death without also speaking of his resurrection. The good news to follow the bad news. But the disciples again never quite seemed to grasp that. But Jesus says he would be raised. Now notice it's passive. Usually when the Bible speaks of the resurrection it says that Jesus would be Raised. Passive. Occasionally talks uh, of it in other ways, but typically the emphasis there is that it's a passive thing. Particularly the Father would raise Jesus from the dead. This is how Peter preached it on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.23. This Jesus, he says, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God raised him up. What does that mean? What well, tells us three significant truths about the resurrection? First, it tells us that the resurrection vindicated Jesus it vindicated him. Not only his, his witness, remember Jesus spoke of the sign of Jonah being given, and the resurrection was that sign. He was in the grave for three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, came out on the first day of the week. It, it gave the sign that people had asked for, the sign he had promised. But it also vindicated his innocence. Jesus had not sinned. Our sin was imputed to him, was placed on him, or, or credited, or he was a debited, to him, but he himself had no sin. That's why Peter says here that it was not possible for him to be held forever by death. It vindicated Jesus. It was also a genuine resurrection, not not mere resuscitation from the dead. Remember, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, uh, called him out of the grave. In a sense, that was a resuscitation, not a true resurrection. Uh, the difference is that Lazarus was back. He, he was in his body. He was as he was. And he would one day die. Trust maybe of old age when God had given him his years on the earth and called him home. Jesus was resurrected. The difference is Jesus' body was now glorified. Jesus' body belonged to the age that is to come. Jesus' body was no longer subject to the pangs of this world. He was now free he was now in uh, fit to be in the new heavens and the new earth and as such was uh, the first fruits the guarantee this is the third thing about jesus uh, resurrection the guarantee of our own that what we see in jesus resurrected body is what we will see in our own body not merely raised up but raised up imperishable raised up incorruptible and this is our hope the resurrection uh, of our own bodies, and guaranteed by the resurrection of Christ's body. And that gives us hope. It gives us hope for eternity, certainly, but it also gives us hope for this life. Um, The disciples' reaction would have been different if they had heard what Jesus said about being raised. If they'd asked about it, if they'd understood that. We don't know how much Jesus would have told them at that point. But you see, the resurrection not only gives us hope for the future, for eternity, it gives us hope for now. Because that means, as Paul says there in First Corinthians 15, our labors in the Lord are not in vain. Nothing done in this, in this life for Christ is in vain because of the resurrection, because of that vindication that is to come. And so Jesus speaks here of being raised on the third day. Well, telling the disciples about this in advance served two purposes. It served two purposes to the disciples. But also for us, as we read the scriptures, as we come to understand the gospel, it confirmed Jesus' identity. Only Jesus could have known not only that he would be killed, but that he would be raised. Certainly an unlikely prospect to make a guess at, but Jesus knew what was going to happen. So it confirms his identity as as the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God, Son of Man. But it also confirmed his purpose, that when Jesus went to the cross, it was not the result of good intentions Gone bad. It was the very plan of God all along who sent His Son into the world to be the Savior of sinners, to give His life as a ransom for many, so that now, 2,000 years later, we can look back and say, you know, Jesus said it would be so all along, and it was so. And Jesus said that those who believe in Him will never perish, but have eternal life. And one day, we will be there in glory. We'll be there in the new heavens and the new earth. And we'll say to one another, you know, Jesus said it would be so all along. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that Jesus spoke in advance before the facts. It merely confirms to us who He is and what He came to do. But Father, ultimately, we thank You for the Holy Spirit who has given us faith to believe in Jesus A Jesus who could speak with 100% accuracy about the future. A Jesus who, having suffered death, was raised on the third day and lives now to intercede for us. And again, Father, we long for that day when the Lord Jesus will return and we will be with Him forever. Thank you, Father, for this passage, Lord, as the disciples were distressed, we having the... Advantage of hindsight, uh, pray, Father, that we might be filled with encouragement and filled with joy. Because our Savior has won the victory over sin and over death. And we pray in His name. Amen.